0: Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly
1: reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Some people read the local paper for news or sports. Others head straight to the opinion columns. That's where you'll find Dick Yarbrough, who has never run short of opinions. The iconic and often ironic opinion wielder enters half a million homes in Georgia and addresses more than one million readers each week in 37 newspapers across the state. More often than not, he is welcome. The Georgia Press Association named Dick's column most humorous several times, although some politicians don't appreciate his on-target barbs. But writing a column that runs in so many papers is just one of his talents. He's also author of two books, a former television communications and PR executive, and mentor to many UGA journalism students. We welcome Dick Yarborough to our studio on the heels of celebrating his 1,000th column. Congratulations. Thank you, Virginia. Thanks for being here. So what keeps you going? 1,000 columns.
0: Uh, I I still have opinions yet to be given, and there's still enough humor-impaired people out there that need to hear them.
1: <laughs> humor-impaired people. Well, judging from the feedback you get on your columns, you are either a bedwetting liberal or a redneck bigot or some variety of wig nut.
0: Yes, guilty. <laughs> All of the above? All of the above. Uh, some people have a hard time not categorizing you into a slot, and I take great pride in not being categorized. And when somebody thinks they have me figured out, I head in a totally different direction.
1: So are there any favorite bits of feedback that you've seen from readers or otherwise? Oh,
0: yes. I had one lady who you can hear them sputter through their email who said that she had a new dog. She was going to lay her column down face up and use it for the dog's puppy training, which I was sort of flattered by. I didn't tell her I was on the computer a lot because I didn't want her dog being on the computer. So
1: well, that would mess things it up. It would.
0: So, but anyway, it's it's fun, and uh, I I tell people that if I give out strong opinions, then I deserve to get back strong opinions. And most of my mail, I must say, I'm I'm uh, pleased to say, a lot of people feel like they have a voice in what I say, particularly public education, which Mm -hmm. is a big, big issue with me.
1: Well, you're known for having a sense of humor about a lot of different issues, but this is in an age of rancor and bitterness. So is is a sense of humor, is that a coping strategy? I think
0: it is, and I think a lot of people uh, appreciate that. I tell people I know more about politics than anybody in the world. And I'm so willing to tell people. And my wife says, nobody cares. Everybody's writing about politics, write about human interest. And so I do. And when I do, I get a tremendous amount of mail. And I think people are kind of relieved. It's like an oasis in the middle of all this strife and anger and stuff that goes on. And so uh, I try to I, I I try to be serious, and I take my job very seriously, but I try to take myself not
1: so seriously. You have jumped into some political minefields, however, advocating for the wall. In fact, a few walls to be built, not along the U.S. southern border, but where do you think we uh, need walls? Along the
0: Mason-Dixon line, we have a lot of uh, aliens coming in who uh, put butter on their sandwich bread and... Uh, don't know what collards are or uh, sweet tea and barbecue. And so I think it's a public service to try to either educate them before they cross the wall or just have them stay up there where it snows 10 months a year and all the buildings are rested.
1: And you also advocate for one along the western border.
0: Yes, I do. Uh, uh, people over in Alabama, uh, I just think they need to stay over there and play football. That's about the main thing they do over there, so uh, they're welcome to it.
1: Well, it is not all fun and games. Let's go back to your diary entry. This is July twenty seventh, nineteen ninety six. The single most traumatic day of my thirty years in business. You write, "That's the day, or really the early morning, a bomb exploded at Centennial Olympic Park." How do you, how do you remember that now, twenty three years later? Uh, it's hard not to
0: remember. We had a, uh, a crisis communication setup, and where I would be notified, uh, along with Billy Payne, the I minute. Mean, anything of of a variety of of things that might happen Uh, praying to God this would never happen and it was on the middle Saturday Friday night early Saturday when we thought we had gotten past all of the problems of running the games and uh, so I got that call that there had been a bomb and they didn't know how many people had been killed at that time. And I remember just being in a daze. And one of the things I remember, and this is interesting, of all the things, I remember being in my automobile, driving down uh, I-75 uh, with nobody else on the road. And I looked at my speedometer, and I was doing over 100 miles an hour. And I just remembered that in my head, thinking, gosh, I'm going 100 miles an hour. And from there until the next day is was simply a blur. Yeah. It was a bad dream. And it's interesting that so many types of things have happened like that since that it doesn't look that big in today's terroristic uh, potential world.
1: Right. Two two people killed, 100 people injured. But that's actually something that I found very interesting about it. You had, uh, uh, what is it, Billy Rathburn, who was who was Bill, head, Rath- Bill right. Rathburn, head of security, and had been working with you for years leading up to that. But they didn't feel like there was going to be a big threat from the outside world, of course, this is before September 11th, many five years before that, uh, because there had been a lot of warning to look for extremist violence and chatter. And you also didn't think, now it's not going to happen from a local uh, militia or southeast, those that had been operating in the southeast and, of course, the yeah. Oklahoma City bombing at that time. It's this, this absolute unexpected nature of well,
0: it. Well, and we had been warned by uh, federal law enforcement officials, you can't stop a random act of violence. However, they told us they would be quick to catch whoever, they, whoever did it. And in this case, it took five years to catch the bomber, and he was caught by a rookie sheriff uh, deputy in North Carolina climbing out of a dumpster. Mm. So that gave me some pause of how good are we at catching these people.
1: I'm speaking with the humorist and award-winning columnist Dick Yarbrough. He's written more than 1,000 columns for now 37 publications throughout Georgia, but he also is the author of a book called And They Call Them Games, an inside view of the 1996 Olympics, his memoir of his role heading External Affairs for the ACOG. That's the Atlanta Committee for the Olympic Games. Well, you know, Clint Eastwood is working on a film about Richard Jewell, right? The man the FBI falsely and quickly accused as responsible for the bombing, later exonerated. Are you looking forward to seeing that portrayed in a major motion picture? I
0: hope Brad Pitt will play me because we <laughs> look so much alike. It's <laughs> I was going to ask you. Yeah.
1: If I, if I shut my eyes... I, um, it, if...
0: it, it's eerie. It really is. It's only about a 50-year difference in our age. But other than that, uh, he's the guy... <laughs>
1: This was a book that, you know, told the story of, of something that you'd pulled off an amazing feat. I mean, a $1.7 billion budget, mostly private raised through yeah. private funding, right? Yeah. Um, the Olympics in Atlanta at that time, but also some accusations against you, you know, uh, Selling, selling Atlanta as a symbol of the New South, but displacing poor residents for the Olympics and um, that kind of thing. I'm wondering, if any of that pushback, how does that feel to you today?
0: We knew at the time we were doing this, Virginia, that the Olympics was a great platform for any special issue that anybody had. So if you had a uh, cross to bear, uh, we were the megaphone in order to do it. And so what you do is just put your head down and do your job, do the best you can do. And uh, what got me into my writing career was a criticism of the city of Atlanta after the games, because I don't think they lived up to their part of the bar. The games, and when you got inside the venue, the games were terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, we had more records set than ever been set. And one of the interesting things, it was the advent of uh, equality in women's athletics. We sold more tickets to women's events mm-hmm. in 1996 than Barcelona had sold tickets in 1992 primarily because of the uh, inclusion of more women's events and the soccer, football competition in Athens uh, had almost 100,000 people to see the women's finals. So th- the the games were great. Uh, the city uh, was like the dog that caught the car. They got it and didn't know what to do with it. And uh, we had traffic problems. We had competing uh, advertising issues with the city. And uh, I I thought the media coverage was sophomoric and so I had a chance to tee off on this a couple of years after the games and I did and so after having sworn to my wife I would quit working. Uh, Somebody asked me to write a second one, a third one and so now 21 years later. You're hooked. I'm I'm hooked.
1: (laughs) Well, you did study journalism at UGA, but you were managing PR for one of the country's largest corporations at the time, the Baby Bell, Bell South. Mm -hmm. That, and of course, the Olympic Committee, these are highly visible positions where you're staying on message and free of controversial statement. I mean, that's paramount in those jobs. Now you're doing an opinion column, and you have for 20-odd years now. Mm -hmm. Did you feel feel untethered? Do you feel like you could say whatever you wanted?
0: I do, and the lawyers can't touch me now, so I don't have to put big words in to obfuscate what I'm saying. But I think, uh, speaking of the University of Georgia, it's interesting to know that the money from the column all go to fellowships in the journalism school at the University of Georgia. So you're not making money off of this? I'm not making money off of it at all. I, I send it over there, and the fellowships go to kids that I could not qualify for one of the fellowships. I'm not smart enough, and uh, these are just bright, bright kids, and they're very sought after, and it gives them a lot of work experience, and it is just the most gratifying thing I do. And I also have a uh, chair in crisis communications mm-hmm. leadership. I want these next generation of young people to be at that table, so when a crisis occurs, you ask the lawyer what we should do, and then you ask your your ex your communications expert what
1: you should do so that's a that's a, a big civic act you know training this next generation being a widely read columnist is a very powerful position, and I was moved recently. I read David Brooks' most recent book. He's a well-known columnist, in New York Times, and mm-hmm. also he's on NPR. It's called The Second Mountain, and it was about the personal pitfalls of that position. That you are there's a kind of ego trap in it. That you are always throwing stuff out there and looking for what you're getting back, and in many ways. Uh, Of course, you know, the ego is a necessary construction. You've got something to say. You want to say it. But I wondered if that's anything that you wrestle with in your life. I do.
0: And I was, when I wrote the book on the uh, games, I called Harold Burson, who was chairman of the largest PR firm in the country, and I said, do you have any advice? He said, get your dates right, because if they're wrong, they will always be wrong. And don't hurt people. And so I uh, I have a wife who uh monitors that and sometimes I can get a little testy and she says that's very hurtful. She's Don't... your editor. Yeah, she's my editor. I've got some great columns that never made it into print that uh I walked in one day and said this is the funniest thing I've ever written and she looked at it and said you're not going to put that in the paper. So <laughs> she is a, she's a good monitor for me as to to keep from getting angry and and you know hurting somebody. People got families and uh, so I try to moderate that a little bit, and uh, and and you know, and I try to self-deprecate myself so that I don't feel that I'm as important as maybe somebody else would think I am.
1: So you're also something that a lot of people may not know about you. You are an exhibiting artist.
0: Oh, that is my passion. You're a painter. I am a painter. When did you discover that? I discovered it after I retired. I had always sketched and drawn and cartooned, and uh, a neighbor of mine, next door neighbor in fact, said, you should take some art lessons. And I did reluctantly, and I discovered something that, you know, they say old dogs can learn new tricks, and I did. It's the most satisfying, gratifying thing that I think I've ever done, is to paint. And I've got a painting down at the Capitol. Uh, I've got uh, a painting at, uh, at one of the colleges and one of the libraries, and I don't sell them. I give them away And because I, the joy is in painting, not in making any money off of it. So. But I hope to continue to do that for some time to come.
1: So in addition to mentoring students and your work with the crisis management, uh, what's something you would tell your college student self?
0: slow down a bit and smell the roses Uh, I'm in my third career now so I did not take my own advice but uh, I just enjoy life uh, particularly while you're in college what a unique experience that is so that's my advice that I do give to the kids you know learn how to add subtract multiply and divide and enjoy the time you're here
1: Dick Yarborough an old dog (laughs) (laughs) learning another trick thank you so much thank
0: you so much for having me it's been enjoyable
1: Dick Yarborough, legendary Georgia columnist. He's written more than 1,000 columns for dozens of publications around the state. Here's to 1,000 more.